Hello and welcome to Elucidations, an unexpected philosophy podcast. I'm Matt Teichman. I'm Josh Kaufman. And with us today is Claire Kerwin, postdoctoral preceptor in the Master of Arts program in the Humanities at the University of Chicago. And she's here to discuss value realism. Claire Kerwin, welcome. Thank you for having me. I am really excited to be here. So one expression that often makes its way into our conversations that you've expressed an interest in is this beauty is in the eye of the beholder thing. So maybe we could begin by talking about what is the idea there? What's the, like, what does beauty is in the eye of the beholder mean? Right. So um, it seems to me that at least one of the things we're expressing in using this phrase is the idea that beauty is not in the thing that is described as beautiful. Instead, it is in the eye of the beholder. So when someone says um, that they find a particular painting or a particular person beautiful, the idea that's being expressed in the phrase beauty is in the eye of the beholder is that the beauty is not in that thing. It's not a property of the painting. Um, it's not the person themselves that is in fact beautiful, but rather it's something going on in the person finding them beautiful. Um, and it's funny, right? Because it sounds like it's about the painting. I said, this painting is beautiful. I right. didn't say anything about Matt, but it's secretly about Matt somehow, even though I talked right. about the painting. Right. And so I take it that the phrase is meant to sort of draw your attention to something that you might not have noticed, which is that really things are not beautiful. And in the area of philosophy that I'm working in, this idea has been extended beyond beauty uh, to all kinds of value. And so there's this idea that not just beauty, but all kinds of goodness, including even moral goodness, are also not, in fact, in things themselves, but are just in the eye of the beholder. So this term realism is maybe something we should explain. It's a little bit of a philosophical jargon. And uh, so I guess it means something different from like, oh, that person's a realist, like they're not naive. Uh, so what, what is realism exactly? Right. So in um, the context of the work that I'm doing, I am a realist because I, in fact, do not think that beauty or goodness is merely in the eye of the beholder at all. In fact, I think that beauty and goodness really are in the things themselves. And so my opponent, the anti-realist, is very committed to this idea that not just beauty, but in fact, all kinds of goodness are actually just uh, something that is based somehow in the individual person's own maybe likes or dislikes or the things that they think are good or bad rather than in the objects themselves. Yeah. And, and then I, I'm curious because obviously one way to read realism is beauty and properties like beauty are just simply in the objects mm -hmm. and have nothing to do with the perceiver or the beholder. So is your notion of realism like that, or, or does it allow that there's some sort of complicated interaction between the beholder and what they're beholding? Right. So part of what I want to be able to make sense of in my view is the idea that I think is one of the things motivating this beauty is in the eye of the beholder claim, and that's the idea that different people find different things beautiful, right? And indeed, different people find different things good, and even moving out of the realm of such noble things as goodness and beauty, people find different kinds of food tasty. And so I think that the fact of that difference has been 
what has motivated a lot of anti-realists to want to say, well, look, it can't be um, the goodness or the beauty or the tastiness can't be in the objects themselves. It has to come somehow from the person who's doing the perceiving. Um, and my thought is that I want to be able to try to make sense of the fact of that difference between people while still saying that the beauty or the goodness is in the object itself. So to do that, I am going to have to say something about the people involved, the people who are doing the perceiving of the beauty and about things that are unique to those people. So it's not that people and their individual differences just fall out of the picture here. They are important. It's just that that fact does not force us to say that there isn't, in fact, beauty or goodness in the objects themselves. So it seems like maybe there are these two data points, as it were, that are in tension. Uh, the first is, it sounds like you're talking about the painting. You never mentioned yourself at any point. Mm-hmm. And maybe that's something we want to take seriously. If we take that seriously, then right. maybe we're, that's going to push us to think that beauty is not in the eye of the beholder. It's actually in the thing itself. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, maybe there's this fact that nobody can agree about what's beautiful. And with certain other things where we want to say we're talking about a property of the thing itself, it seems like there's more agreement. So on the one hand, we can kind of like interpret what people are saying straightforwardly and not make it the case that they're secretly talking about something else. That's kind of the one um, trade-off. And then the other trade-off is we can take seriously the fact that there is like seems to be no consensus on what really is beautiful. Yeah, and I want to push it even further than that because I don't think it's just the fact that people do in fact disagree that makes us want to say that beauty is in the eye of the beholder. Because, you know, in theory, if it was just that people disagreed, then we could just say, okay, well, a bunch of them are wrong. I mean, that's fine. Maybe plenty of people are just confused. I think we have intuitions that are even stronger than that pushing towards the beauty is in the eye of the beholder view. And that's that it seems perfectly right that people should disagree when it comes to this kind of thing. So when it comes to like us all talking about what color your shirt is, your shirt is blue, it's a very nice shirt. And if a person was colorblind, maybe there would be some problem with them seeing that, but still overall, We would want to say, look, the shirt is actually blue. And so if we found disagreement in that case, then that needn't force us to say, oh, blue is just in the eye of the the beholder and there's no fact about what color your shirt is. I think so. I think it's more than that in the case of value and beauty. I think it's that we feel that if I like the paintings of one particular artist and you like the paintings of a different artist, or if I like to listen to one kind of music and you like to listen to a different kind of music, that's just as it should be. And that, I think, suggests that a model on which the value is really in the thing itself and one of us is therefore wrong, that's an unattractive model. Yeah, it seems like this case is also somehow morally charged. Like if I try to come in and correct you, I'm somehow, like, somehow that's a violation of your right to like whatever you like. Right. It seems like a normal part of human life that people are different from one another, that they're different in the things that they choose to do with their time. Um, They're different in the qualities that they appreciate in other people. This all seems like not just some sort of 
flaw in humans, right? But rather part of just what it is to be human. There's something important to do with an individual having their own character, their own likes and dislikes that I want to be able to hold onto while still being quite firmly and comprehensively realist about value. So I want to hold onto the idea that people are and should be different in the ways that they relate to the goodness and badness or the beauty of things. But at the same time, I want to say that the goodness and badness of things and the beauty of things is really out there to be discovered in the objects themselves and is not merely to be found in the individual's beholding eye. So to make the idea more clear, like like I think, for example, in, in the case of ice cream, I really love mint chip ice cream. And I can just say mint chip ice cream is good. And and people might judge me for that, for for being a strange person. But nevertheless, like uh, I have this basic right to just make a claim about my value uh, and what I value with respect to ice cream. But at the same time, I, I don't really expect other people to share my value. So, for um, what it's worth, I'm definitely team midship. I mean, 100%. And I am very much not so good. Yeah. This is a good case. Um, okay, so... I, since moving to America, have developed a deep love for all things peanut butter cup flavor. It seems like so many things can be made the flavor of peanut butter cup that one would not have expected. And I really love peanut butter cup ice cream. And I think there's something very intuitive about the thought that there is absolutely nothing wrong with the fact that I like peanut butter cup ice cream and you like mint chocolate chip ice cream. Given the choice between the two, I'm never going to choose mint chocolate chip ice cream. Yeah, this just seems like a just like a bad decision to me. Okay, so that's a good example of like a really sort of ordinary case in which people just differ in the preferences they have, in the things that they find good in the world, and then those differences are going to inform what it makes sense for that person to do if they find themselves in an ice cream shop having to choose a flavor of ice cream. It's going to make sense for you to choose the mint chocolate chip ice cream, and it's going to make sense for me to choose the peanut butter cup ice cream. So that's one sort of example, maybe uh, still within what gets called the realm of the aesthetic. We can move in a more sort of what's typically thought of as a more serious direction towards thinking about, I mentioned earlier, people have different tastes in music. And so um, I know a lot of people uh, take very seriously classical music, and it's a very important and enriching part of their life. That is not really something that I get very much. I spent quite a happy half hour last night just watching a lot of YouTube videos of David Bowie performing live, and that gave me a lot of joy. Um, So again, that seems like a part of life that is perfectly normal and human that I like watching David Bowie and they like listening to classical music. Yeah. And I think it's interesting because even within classical music fans, there there might be serious disagreements. Right, right. Um, people might have these sort of big genre-based preferences, but then as soon as you get excited about a particular area of goodness in the world, you're likely to then have very strong opinions about subdivisions within that area. So there are going to be classical composers who really do it for you and others that you think are totally overrated. So just to quickly recap about the terminology, realist means you think the value is like really there in the thing itself. Mm -hmm. Anti-realist means you think it's in the eye of the beholder. Yeah. 
And we can apply this to lots of different cases. We can apply it to ice cream. We can apply it to the evaluation of music. And maybe we can also apply it to like a moral evaluation of what different people do. So for example, a moral realist might say that lying to somebody is objectively bad. And that's a feature of the lying itself. It's not just like bad to me or something. Mm-hmm. And then what we're doing is we're playing up those analogies between the moral case, the ice cream case, and the classical music case. But in practice, people often have diverging intuitions about those cases. Maybe they're happy to say that lying really is objectively bad. It's not just bad to you versus bad to me. But they're not willing to say that about Mm -hmm. stuff like ice cream. Right. And it seems to me that at least one of the reasons that people don't want to say that about the ice cream case or maybe even the classical music versus other kinds of music case, is precisely because of this thing that we've talked about a little earlier on, which is that not only do people differ in their preferences and tastes in relation to these parts of life, but that it seems perfectly right and proper that they differ. So in the case of lying, if someone says to me, oh, I actually don't think lying is is very bad. I mean, I'll do it whenever it will advance my well-being. I'm going to lie to people. In that case, I don't feel inclined to say, well, you know, you do you, I'll do me. It doesn't really matter. It does matter. They've gotten something wrong there because lying really is bad. And yet, as we've talked about, when it comes to matters of difference in taste in relation to ice cream or different kinds of music or different the work of different artists, it seems that not only do people disagree, but we're completely fine with that. And the fact of their disagreement doesn't seem to pose any philosophical problem. Um, And that's what causes the difficulty for me, a realist who is also a realist uh, when it comes to matters of the goodness of different kinds of music and different kinds of ice cream. So that's what I need to be able to explain is how it can be the case that people differ and that that's completely right and proper, but at the same time, the value is something that we should understand to be in the objects themselves. And that's why we call this episode value realism, because we want a totally general term across these cases to reflect the fact that you take an analogous position about these different examples. Right. So according to you, peanut butter cup flavored ice cream really is good. And when we say that it's good, we're talking about a value that's in the peanut butter cup flavored ice cream itself and not in the person experiencing it. Mm -hmm. How can that possibly be the case? Right. So what I need to explain is how that can be the case alongside the fact of difference between different people and the fact that difference seems perfectly fine. And my idea is that we can make sense of both of these things together by using what I call a model of value expertise. So I am starting to think about this phenomenon of expertise, first of all, in relation to areas of the world that we don't typically think of as to do with value or goodness or badness, but just to do with straightforward matters of fact. So when it comes to ordinary matters of fact, it seems to me that different people who have different areas of expertise will be able to see different things in the world. So one really ordinary and kind of familiar example is if you look out of your window and you see a tree, then what you see there, what you see when you see that tree is going to be influenced by the particular areas of expertise that you have. So if you know nothing about trees, you're just gonna say, oh, it's a tree, it's green. 
If you have a little bit more expertise about varieties of trees, you might be able to say, oh, it's an oak tree. If your specialty also covers, say, tending to oak trees, and you know a lot about the good growing conditions for oak trees, you might know that the oak tree out of your window is not doing very well in this particular environment. You can see that some of its leaves are a little bit discolored, and you might know that that means that the oak tree is sort of growing in a soil that has the wrong pH value. Um, and so what you see when you look out the window at this tree might be just a tree, or it might be an oak tree, or it might be an oak tree growing unhappily in sort of overly alkaline soil. And in each of these cases, you're seeing something that's really there. You're seeing the tree. But what you see, what you're able to notice, and what's meaningful to you in what you see is different. And my thought is that this phenomenon could be extended to the realm of value. So I can say that a person who really prefers classical music, the reason for that is because they have special expertise in the realm of classical music for a lot of reasons. Maybe they um, listened to a lot of classical music as a child because they had parents who thought that that would be a good idea. Maybe they just happen to have an especially sharp sense of hearing that makes them sensitive to certain things in classical music. And that's why they end up with their expertise in the realm of classical music. But if we think of it as expertise, then we can understand it as a way of being able to see something that's really there. And in the same way that people can differ in their expertise in relation to what we want to think of as matters of fact, people can differ in their expertise in relation to the realm of goodness and badness and different forms of beauty and even such matters as the tastiness of different flavors of ice cream. And so my preference for peanut butter cup ice cream is not merely something in me. It's my special ability to see the special goodness that really is inherent in peanut butter cup ice cream. So just like a botanist might be able to take a look at a tree and actually kind of have a different visual experience than I do. I look at it and be like, oh, I guess the tree or whatever. They might be able to look at it and be like, oh, that's immediately see some fungus growing on and be like, why does this fungus on this tree? That's crazy. And it has this instant response mm -hmm. to the tree. Just like um, that's how tree experts can have different experience of trees, you know, maybe like a master chef or something mm -hmm. can um, experience ice cream differently because they're just totally immersed in uh, the wonderful world of all the little subtleties of how to make ice cream. And maybe they study the chemistry behind it, et cetera, et cetera. Exactly. Um, yeah. And, and it also seems in the tree case, even though we might be inclined to view expertise naturally as just on one dimension, mm -hmm. like it could work in sort of different cases. Like we could imagine, say, there's a painter who perceives the tree right. and they perceive facts about its shadows and all, all sorts of visual structures. So are they more of an expert about what they're seeing than a botanist? In some sense, yes. In some sense, one. But, but the question who's more of an expert doesn't really make sense. They're just experts in different ways. Good, right. So I do think that expertise is something that it makes sense to think of both as coming in degrees, but yeah, also very importantly as coming in different forms. And so in the botany dimension, there might be someone who's just more or less of an expert when it comes to that specific mode of seeing. But 
um, the example of a painter is a really nice one. The painter is going to be seeing the tree that is really there with the dappled sunlight that is really sort of filtering through the leaves. But that's what they notice. That's what they see as interesting, as worthy of note here, as worthy possibly of turning into a painting here. And that just seems like a quite different mode of seeing. And yet, none of this undermines the fact that there really is a tree there that all these people are seeing. So it's like different experts have different forms of expertise that may enable them to see different aspects of the tree than each other. Yeah. Um, so obviously one thing is like in the tree example, it seems that even though people are seeing different things and they're seeing things in different way, nevertheless, it's not like they're seeing conflicting things. Mm-hmm. But it seems like in the ice cream case, something is different going on where when Matt and I see mint, have mint chip ice cream, we see something as good, whereas... When you taste it, you taste it as bad or just not good. So so right. how can we make sense of that disagreement and sort of what we're perceiving where it seems like we're actually disagreeing and the content of, of what we're perceiving disagrees? So obviously, in this case, you guys are just wrong about mint chocolate chip ice cream. What? That's not what I think. Yeah. I think that there are ways of thinking about what appears on my model like it might have to be a disagreement. So I think that in the realm of ice cream, I have this special expertise, special localized expertise, maybe not terribly important expertise, probably not going to be able to make a career out of it, but nonetheless expertise at seeing the special value that peanut butter cup ice cream has. And even though I personally cannot see the value in mint chocolate chip ice cream, Enough people whose judgments I generally trust have told me that it is good for me to think that maybe there is actually something there that I'm missing out on because I don't have the expertise that you have. So in this instance, what I would want to say is that my expertise about peanut butter cup ice cream is not equivalent to my claiming that peanut butter cup ice cream is objectively better than mint chocolate chip ice cream, like it might be. I mean, I'm, I'm willing to allow that it might be. And the evidence that I have so far does suggest, in fact, that it might be. But my view does not commit me to that. All I think about peanut butter cup ice cream is that it is, in fact, objectively good. And because I believe you guys when you say that you like mint chocolate chip ice cream, I believe that mint chocolate chip ice cream is also objectively good. It's just that you have the special skills to be able to access and experience that goodness in a way that I don't. And that's what explains my preference for peanut butter cup ice cream, your preference for mint chocolate chip ice cream, and also the fact that when we each go into the ice cream shop, it makes sense for us to make different choices. Excellent. Yeah. So maybe this is a way of resolving the dilemma we started off with, where on the one hand, we want to respect the fact that it sounds like you're talking about the thing itself. And on the other hand, we want to respect the fact that people seem to have divergent opinions um, about the values of things. This is a way of reconciling both those things. It's kind of like a let many flowers bloom approach, um, exactly. where there's just different kinds of value. And I can see this kind of value, and this person can see that other kind of value. But you know, there's nothing incompatible about different people seeing different kinds of value in things. But the value is still actually there, potentially. Right. Great. Um, and I think it's interesting because it almost feels like there's an asymmetry between these two cases where, where when you taste ice cream and, and, and you taste that it's good, 
maybe we're realists in, in that case. Like, mm-hmm. like the value is really in that ice cream. But when I say this ice cream is bad, may, maybe actually the, the surface language is misleading. And what I'm actually saying is that there's something I don't have access to. Because sort of my intuition is, is that even though you think on the basis of what people tell you that mint chip ice cream is good, that there's value in there. Nevertheless, if you walk into an ice cream store and you say mint chip ice cream is good, that would confuse the ice cream person. They would, they would give you a sample. They would suspect you want it. So, um, Mine is good, obviously. <laughs> so, so yeah, so it does seem almost maybe we're, we're, we're sort of anti-realists in sort of these negative value cases or cases where we don't perceive value. Yeah, that's a really interesting question. So one of, as I started working on this, I did notice that my inclination was to talk primarily about cases of value rather than cases of what you might call disvalue. And I do think that there is some sort of asymmetry between the two. I do think that at least in many cases, when a person doesn't like something, what I am going to want to say about that is not that they have special expertise in seeing the badness of that thing, but rather just that they lack another kind of expertise. And they might not realize that they lack that kind of expertise. They might not realize that in part because my value expertise view has not made its way into into either mainstream academic discourse nor uh, mainstream discourse in the world. But once this episode comes out, look at Exactly, right. I mean, once this episode comes out, everyone will just be able to explain much more clearly what's going on with them. So that'll be great. Um, Right, but so in, in many of those cases... I am inclined to say that it's not that they are an expert in seeing disvalue, but rather just that they lack an expertise in seeing a value that is really there. However, I'm not convinced that that is always going to be the best explanation. I think there is also such things as inherent badness of certain kinds, and that one can get good at spotting certain kinds of badness. I think one sees this more strikingly in the moral realm. So people's ability to notice instances of certain kinds of injustice, that's the sort of thing that you can work on and get better at, I think. And so that would be a case of someone developing their expertise in relation to a case of disvalue. There does intuitively seem to be some kind of disanalogy there. It's kind of hard to put your finger on exactly what it is. But like, there is some intuition that take a really ugly piece of artwork, you can find some way of understanding it, some little nugget of something in there that'll make it appear beautiful to you if you just take enough time with it and think about it creatively enough. Whereas there are some horribly immoral actions where at least there's an intuition that no matter how much you contemplate the action, there's like nothing good about this. So I think it may be that when it comes to matters that we tend to put under the heading of morality and especially questions of justice, the urgency of getting it right is much more serious than in matters of just sort of contemplating a painting. No one's going to end up injured or having their life ruined or living under systems of oppression if you happen to miss some instance of goodness in this particular painting or if your understanding of what's going on in the painting is impoverished in some way. But when it comes to matters of accurately seeing justice and injustice, people's lives and populations' lives are on the line. And so in that case, 
it may be that even if there is somewhere something good in this unjust action, like the fact that a person was acting partly out of loyalty for a friendship that they have with some terrible co-conspirator, that's really, in the grand scheme of things, deeply unimportant compared to the injustices that have been committed. And so the injustice ought to be the focus of our attention. And so raising questions of, oh, is there something good to be found here, is itself to take a particular moral sense that strikes me as the, the wrong stance to take in that kind of case. Do you think it's possible to be an expert in detecting moral evil? I'm trying to imagine what that would look like. I mean, I guess the kind of case that I was thinking of was more something like we're getting better, I think, at noticing structural injustices in examples of interactions between people that might originally have struck us as just very ordinary. So, for instance, when a group of women got together and started to develop the concept of sexual harassment as something that they wanted to talk about, right? That concept allowed them, but also us as a society, to be able to see something in particular. Yeah, if not an evil, then like a deep wrong that was always there, but that we hadn't had the relevant expertise to be able to see. And part of that was because in that case, we didn't have the relevant conceptual apparatus to be able to talk about it. Yeah. And a lot of people don't know about this, but the term sexual harassment was just coined in the 1970s. And before that, you know, women had some vague inkling that something bad was happening to them in the workplace, but weren't really sure what it was or whether it was real or what exactly was happening. And it took like the coining of this term to be able to get people to think about and notice a certain kind of evil that was present. Um, so I, that's an interesting example, I think, where, yeah, some instances of evil are really obvious and overt and familiar, but maybe the more unfamiliar ones can just sort of slip under the radar. Right. Um, yeah. And I think almost in situations like this, it might be helpful. It's not, it might be misleading to say it's acquiring an expertise, but it's almost correcting what before could be like an anti-expertise. Well, um, I mean, so yeah. I, I do think that the broad model of expertise is still, still works here, but that what we probably would want to say about this case is that there are some forms of expertise that you have some sort of basic obligation to try to develop, whereas that probably isn't true for all forms of expertise, right? I don't have some basic obligation to go and learn to appreciate techno music or something. Yeah. Um, but when it comes to matters of injustice that are part of the world that I'm living in, it does seem important that I try to develop my expertise to see those things. Yeah, because what I was thinking is it seems like there's some spheres where sort of our, our baseline experiential capacity to perceive things, it might actually just be wrong. Like it might be the case with sort of like in matters of fact with optical illusions, mm -hmm. like just our baseline, right. we're wrong and, and we really have to correct that. And when we see an optical illusion, it genuinely seems to us like right. how things are. Um, but we have to acquire expertise, not only to get mastery, but to correct what's Right. Something that's um, wrong. And, and it seems in these value cases, that's one way to make sense of it and also to make sense of how, at the same time, we can understand that for people we have serious moral disagreements with, they genuinely perceive such and such as being the right way. And we can make sense of that as it genuinely seeming to them. Mm -hmm. So um, the optical illusion example is really interesting. And I think that when it comes to questions of value and 
what you described as like our base state being to miss C, I think that a lot of the time, the correct diagnosis of why that is the case is going to come from looking at the structures of the society or the community that we live in. So there are certain features of capitalism, say, that make it the case that we're inclined to see the world and other people and our relationships to other people in certain kinds of ways that I would like to say are wrong, are misleading, um, in really morally significant respects. And so a big part of clearing one's vision about these kinds of cases is going to come through some sort of reflection, not just on my personal life and my personal ability to see or not see things. It's not just going to come through me, say, educating myself about forms of injustice that maybe I don't have direct first personal experience of. It's going to partly be that, but much more importantly, is going to be a matter of us looking collectively at the structures that we live under and thinking about how those structures make us missee or misinterpret our moral relationships to each other. Yeah, and, and actually I have a related question to that, which again is if we take typically think about realism, there's like some sort of God's eye view mm-hmm. where, where we can imagine a God and, and she just sees all, all the facts. But if they're seeing types right. of value are, are fundamentally intention, how do we make sense about that? Do we have to just abandon this idea of a God's eye view? Right. So when it comes to ice cream flavors, it seems like the god of ice cream can safely say that, yes, peanut butter cup ice cream is really wonderful. And yes, mint chocolate chip ice cream is really wonderful. And presumably the god of ice cream, she's like got expertise in all these different areas. And if it turns out, as I suspect, that rum and raisin ice cream is objectively bad, god of ice cream will know this. So she sees the whole realm of ice cream mapped out before her. She's got a list of all the all the value there is, um, you know, an exhaustive list of, in every piece of ice cream. Exactly, exactly. She knows everything there is to know about value as it pertains to ice cream. Now, so the question, if we move beyond ice cream and think about the world of value more generally, could there be a god's eye view on that? And... Um, I have a suspicion that there might not be. And so my thought is that there seems to be some forms of value that are inherently in tension with one another, such that having expertise in relation to one of those kinds of value of necessity precludes one's having expertise in relation to the other kind of value. So one of the cases that I have talked about before is the example of opera, Uh, Lots of people like opera. And I'm very influenced here by Tolstoy, who has this wonderful book called What is Art? And at the beginning of his book, he just goes on about how much he hates opera. Or more precisely, he goes on about how terrible opera is. And his reason for thinking that opera is terrible, as far as I can tell, is that he has all of these various political commitments. He thinks that opera is founded on a completely unjust system of the exploitation of workers. He thinks that the aesthetic that comes out of this is just vile and reprehensible and represents all that's sort of hideous about rich people in his society. And I wonder if my own inability to see the value that I genuinely believe is in opera, because again, smart people who I trust have told me that there is value in opera. 
my I wonder if my inability to see that comes at least in part from my own socialist commitments. And I suspect that coming to increase my expertise in relation to opera would require of necessity lessening my grip on the form of value expertise that is my socialist commitments. I would have to immerse myself in this sort of bourgeois aesthetic world in such a way that even though I'm not going to stop being a Marxist as a result of that, maybe the significance of those commitments would lessen, would fade from my view. And so in that case, it seems to me at least possible that those two forms of value might be so in tension with one another that there isn't such a thing, there couldn't be such a thing as being able to just fully see both of them clearly, even for a god. Now, it strikes me that in many cases, the tension that we find between values is not actually entirely inherent to the values themselves, but is rather a function of the social world that we live in. So it seems to me that there are also at least some cases in which the conflict between values that we find is not just fundamentally natural to the values themselves, but is instead a function of the structure of the social world that we live in. So there's this case of this painter, Gauguin. Bernard Williams gives a sort of fictionalized example in some of his philosophical writing, but it's essentially Gauguin, uh, who has to make the decision whether or not to leave his family in order to pursue his vocational artistic calling to go and create what he hopes or believes will be great art. And so in this case, it seems that there is some kind of conflict between the values that one finds within family life and nurturing family relationships, and on the other hand, the value that is involved in creating great art. And I think Gauguin is often our sort of figurehead for that sort of conflict, but one suspects that there have been a great many uh, women artists throughout the centuries who have felt the force of this conflict and that we haven't talked about quite as much as Gauguin. So in the case of this conflict between, on the one hand, nurturing family relationships and on the other hand, creating great art, it seems to me that a huge part of what's creating the conflict here is not some inherent conflict between family life and and creating art, but rather the structure of our society in which Each family has to entirely fend for itself. There is no sort of broader structured community in which we support one another in the care of children. And it seems that if we changed some of those things, the tension between these two values would lessen. It's interesting. So it seems like on your view, there can be trade-offs in expertise such that if you have the one kind of expertise, that blocks your ability to have the other kind of expertise but that in at least some of those cases, those trade-offs are there because of like background, structural, social conditions. Yes, that's right. Yeah, and it seems like, like what the view allows us to say is that sort of locally, because of all these conflicts, uh, it can sort of explain why anti-realism seems so compelling. Because if you look at it locally, there's no fact about what the painting should do because we have all these conflicting facts about perception, but but nevertheless, even though there's this local disagreement that doesn't force us to commit globally, there's no value. Right. And so I sort of want to bring into view both 
um, the usefulness of thinking about different kinds of value and the possibility that different people might relate to those kinds of values differently, but at the same time, bringing into view the structural features that bring these kinds of value into conflict with one another. Claire Kerwin, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. The Elucidations blog has moved. We are now located at elucidations.now.sh. On the blog, you can find our full back catalog of previous episodes. And if you have any questions, please feel free to reach out on Twitter at, at elucidationspod. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>